Welcome back to Audience, a Castos original experience. Broadcasting from the center of your audio universe, where rookie, intermediate, and veteran podcasters alike find their home at castos.com. Press play right here in your podcast player every week. It's like a cheat sheet for marketing, monetizing, and growing your podcast so good, you'll want to share castos.com slash audience with your closest friends. Okay, audience starts now. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning back in to the Castos Creator Spotlight Series. This series, a part of our audience podcast, is all about you, the content creators out there, and what you are doing to produce your podcast and share it with the world. In each episode, we interview Castos customers and creators of podcasts to share insights, tips, and tricks, and talk a little bit about their podcasting journeys. Today, I am very excited to be joined by Alexandra Mannerings, the founder of Marikinos and the host of the Heart, Soul, and Data podcast. Very excited to have you with us, Alexandra. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me here today. Yeah, and it is an absolute pleasure to have you with us. I was really excited during our initial interview to speak with you just because I think that what you are doing with your podcast and how it sort of plays a role in not only education, but a, you know, it's playing a pretty pivotal role in your business. And I thought that was really interesting. It was really in- interesting intersection for me around, you know, podcasting, not only as an educational form, and we've had some guests on the show previously who have talked about podcasting for an education standpoint, but how it plays a role in your business. So if I could ask maybe just real quick, could you talk a little bit about your business? I know that you had said you had recently started it, but I'd love just to hear a little bit more about it because I think the podcast plays a really important role in that. And I think that's a great jumping off point for us. Absolutely. So I started my business in February. So it's been going just for six, eight months now. And I started that business because I really, really wanted to put the decade of experience I had in analytics to work helping the organizations that make the biggest difference in our communities, nonprofits. So this is oftentimes a sector that is really ill-served by a lot of the discussions around analytics out there. And so I really wanted to try to change how we approach analytics to make it something that's accessible when you don't necessarily have tons of resources, when you don't have a team of data scientists, when you're not going to be able to afford, you know, $180,000 a year analytic developer, and you've got to figure out how to kind of hack this together. But it's so critical to have that kind of access to information, access to analytics. And so the podcast came about just a month ago. It's brand new. And it really started because I realized how much of a need there was for a space to have conversations in this sector. So you're right that it helps me open the door and start to make a subject that can be a little bit scary, a little bit overwhelming, a little bit intimidating potentially, or one that you just feel too you know, busy to even have. And we can start to have this in a fun, engaging, open way of how do you use analytics to make the world a better place? How do you succeed with analytics, you know, if you don't have a ton of money burning a hole in your pocket? And so the podcast is a way for me to start that conversation and kind of meet potential customers or people in this industry where they are and get them used to me, get them to see where I come from here. And that I 
I really do believe in what I'm trying to do. And so maybe six months from now, when they do have a need, or they are finally ready to take a step, they've been able to hear from me, and they know me a little bit better. And it's easier to then connect, you know, from a business point of view. Yeah, and I think that that is just such a sort of great ideology to have, you know, one of the things that, you know, in my role here at Castos, it's, you know, very much so marketing based uh, as our head of growth. And one of the things that I always tell myself is like, be everywhere, you know, have your voice, whether it's, you know, actually your voice, or the voice of your brand, always out there and communicating with people. Because I think, you know, if you can get in front of someone for the first time, even if they don't have a need right now, you can build this sort of subconscious awareness where they say, you know, in your case, like, oh, I heard uh, Alexandra on this podcast and, you know, this nonprofit that I work for, I know that they're having some struggles with data. Maybe I'll reach out to her and see, you know, what services she might offer. And I think that that's just such a great way to, you know, not only share data that people are and share content that people really need, but also have it act as sort of a marketing channel for your business. So I'd like to talk about, you know, nonprofits and their relationship with data. It's something, you know, quite honestly, that I hadn't considered. I use data every single day in my job here, but I know that you had mentioned that, you know, part of the reason for creating the podcast was this relationship that many nonprofits have with data, that it's either expensive or it can be a little bit scary. Why do you think that there is an, an aversion to data specifically within this sort of nonprofit sector? So the first thing is we as humans are wired for language, right? We come out pre-programmed to accept the language. We're just waiting as infants to find out which language we're around. We are not hardwired for data. It's just not something that evolutionarily you have any need to be able to aggregate large amounts of data and analyze them and do statistics. And so it's something that we've adapted our brains to be able to do, but it never comes naturally. And so something that doesn't come naturally means that you have to invest time and effort into learning how to be comfortable and confident with it. And when you work in a nonprofit, unless you're lucky enough to work for one of the you know 6% of nonprofits that are large and well-funded, the rest of them are all wearing multiple hats, doing three different jobs. And the idea of having to invest time and effort into learning something that's not going to come naturally is oftentimes just a barrier. So you you have the option between, all right, I have to plan this event and I have to run this this fundraising program and I have to do these 19 other things that are, you know, on my backlog. Where am I going to find the time to sit down and actually learn a new skill or take on, you know, a new capability? And so because there's that, that sort of learning barrier that can happen, then when a question comes up that needs to be answered by data, there's already a preset barrier before you can even overcome the next barrier of actually doing that data action. And so I think that's a really important thing to remember, you know, that that this isn't something that we just wake up one day and know how to do. And so to have, you have to have that commitment and that time and the organizational acceptance that this is going to be something that does really matter and we're going to invest in it. And then when you talk about investing, now you're talking again about time and money that maybe aren't necessarily just free and able to be invested in that. And then the second aversion that I think comes up is that, frankly, data has a PR problem, right? It gets a bad rap of something that's cold or heartless, right? We talk about don't be emotional, be logical, right? Use data instead of intuition or use data instead of the emotional story. And when you work in nonprofits, you don't do it for the money. Let's be honest, right? You're doing it because you passionately believe in what you're there to do. 
And if you're there because your heart is telling you this is the right thing, it sometimes feels almost like a betrayal of this thing you passionately believe in to say, well, I'm going to now sacrifice it at the altar of this cold, heartless data. And I'm going to use data to tell me how to do this thing that I passionately love and believe in, or that I'm going to reduce these people that I'm serving to a statistic. And I think that 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 challenge, right, that I'm going to reduce these people to a statistic, we have to kind of revamp that and said, and instead say, no, 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 we're going to make sure that everyone gets a voice. Because when you use data, it's actually the reverse. We aren't reducing people. We're elevating every single voice to count. It's not just the loud and powerful that now get to count. When we use data, we're able to represent people that maybe don't have a voice or maybe can't speak for themselves literally or figuratively. They get to be represented when we do really well-crafted analyses. But that's not necessarily the first way we think of data. I think that so much of what you just said is very profound and reflective of the relationship that I think a lot of people might have with data. When you had said that, you know, human beings have sort of a natural aversion to data, I couldn't agree more. You know, that was something that I found out very early, you know, taking, you know, data classes in college, and I hated it at the time. But, you know, when I went to go work for a small startup uh, before Castos, what I learned about data is that it doesn't have to be evil or it doesn't have to be scary. In fact, you can use data to make your life easier. And I think that that's a, a, a really great point that's like a f- reflective to what you had said of this aversion to data. I think that if people can get over that hump of saying, hey, this is something that could actually help us and make all of our lives easier, you know, internally. But also to your second point, allow us to properly serve people. I think that conversation is so important to have because many people aren't actively thinking about that. You know, I was thinking about, you know, during the second part of what you said about, you know, how, you know, there's definitely this aversion to data where it's also like seems very cold. And it's funny to think about because I think that the first thing that many people might consider about data when you're thinking about process improvements or things that you can do within the company. It's like, oh, we're using data to reduce our bottom line costs and lay off people. And I think because that can so often be the first thing that someone thinks of, they're like, data, it always has to be cold. But to your point, it can be something that can allow you to serve you know, your customers, those in your community. It can help expand the reach of your nonprofit if you're just you know willing to take that step and try and implement some of these things. So I think that that's a conversation that's just so profound and is a really, really great thing. It was why I was, you know, so excited to talk to you today because it is, you know, and I think that your mindset is totally different than the traditional mindset around data where it's either something you have to do because somebody told you you should, or it's ice cold and you're laying off people and you're reducing bottom line costs. So what do you think that, you know, the biggest barriers to nonprofits using data aside from some of those like natural aversions are? I think first is just the industry, right? Data scientists cost a ton of money. If you've spent 15 years getting really good at doing data, you're going to command a very large salary. And so there is just a barrier in terms of getting and keeping good analytic talent permanently in a nonprofit. 
The next is that most nonprofits, you know, have some system in place that just maybe isn't quite serving them right. And the activation energy required to change that to make it a more efficient data system can, again, be something they just don't have lying around. Like, yes, we know our CRM isn't quite doing what we want, but the the lift required to research and investigate and onboard and shift to a whole new one that's actually going to get us the data we need, that can be really difficult as well. Another barrier as well is, like I said, that there's just not a lot out there helping nonprofits specifically. If you just Google data science, most of it is helping businesses, right? Commercial entities, again, that have tons of resources, have a ton of data and that are talking about, again, to your point, how do we become more efficient and maybe lay people off or whatever? You're talking about AI revolution and everything like that. Like it is really geared towards business. And so I think sometimes nonprofits are like, that's not for me. And in fact, I've had a conversation with an individual uh, who ran an education nonprofit, they, an education fund. And when I asked him about KPIs and asked him about what data does, you know, do they use to, to guide their nonprofit? They said, Oh, well, we don't have to do fundraising because we are grant funded. They have a trust that funds them. And so he's like, so we don't need to worry about data metrics on our progress. And for a second, I didn't understand what he was saying. And then I realized that there is this idea that the point of data is to make sure you have enough money, right? Whether you're talking about profit or whether you're talking about fundraising. But that's the only place that some, for some reason data seems to belong. And I think part of it is dollars are counted as numbers. And so somehow, like, we always think data are numbers and therefore, like, data and dollars always go together and that's the only place for them or something. I mean, I even worked for a company when I was in the data department, that the data department reported to the CFO. And when I said, look, I support patient safety, I support communications data, I I do data as a service to the entire organization. Why are we part of the finance department? And it was like, well, because finance and and data go together. And so I, I don't think that this is an uncommon point of view that somehow data and money are tied together. And so that can also stop them from using data to do program evaluation or, you know, longer term other strategies to help make sure that they're actually getting where they want to go with with their nonprofit. Yeah, and it seems like that nonprofits in particular can there's a lot that they can benefit from if they're able to uncouple sort of that idea that data has to be tied to finance One of the things that we were talking about before the show and before we hit the record button is you had mentioned that data can make decisions, but, you know, ultimately there's a human at the end of those decisions. So you can let your values guide what becomes of utilizing that data. And I thought that was really interesting. How were some of the ways that you had seen, you know, specific nonprofits using data to support their mission? One of my favorite examples, which again, you talk about having a podcast to help my business. It also helps me meet extraordinary individuals that are doing this really great work out there. And I get to make these new connections and, and hear new stories. And, and one of my very early podcast interviews was with a woman named Donna Papilo. She is a reverend and the executive director of Deaconess Nurse Ministry. And she told a story of her organization's long journey to be able to actually get the systems in place to collect point of care information and data about the services that their nurses provide. And she's a small, she runs a very small nonprofit. There's two people in the office, 26 nurses out in the field. And what she recognizes without the ability to, in a consistent standard way, collect information about the patients that they were serving, about the interventions they were trying, they didn't know which programs to expand and which programs maybe to sunset and which programs maybe to just maintain. And they wanted to make those decisions based on which ones drove the best outcomes. And this is really important. 
it takes a special kind of data and a special commitment to be able to measure outcomes, not just outputs. Well, we have 26 nurses and they made 50,000 visits. But no, did we actually reduce blood pressure? Did we actually prevent falls? Did we actually improve the health outcomes, outcomes, not just outputs, outcomes of the people that we serve? And once she got her data systems in place, so they actually invested in a third party system, right? First, they tried paper. That didn't work. And then they tried building their own system. And what happened is then they had 26 different systems because each system would end up on its own computer and each nurse would make their own tweaks to it. And it, again, didn't standardize the data in a way that provided this consistent view. And then they were able to go through and find a vendor that did case management and look, we have the system already built for you. They implemented that and they've now been very successful in tracking the outcomes of different programs. And she says it changes the way they have conversations, both strategically and on a daily basis about the programming that they're going to do. And and again, it's not like she's using it to beat people to be like, you failed and your program didn't do good enough. It's more that they can both sit down, look at the numbers and say, hmm, this doesn't seem to be going the direction that we both want it to be going. Right. We're both on the same side here. We know that this is your program and we know that we're both committed to this outcome, maybe right, preventing falls. And we don't see that we're preventing falls with this program. So what should we do about that? And that's what she says is she always asks the question, what do you want to do about that? How are we going to increase this outcome that we want? And then you're able to have a discussion, make a change and track the data to see if your new intervention, the new way that you're doing that program ends up having a better job in preventing falls or whatever the outcome is that you're trying to do. It's an interesting example too, I think specifically because of like the, the aspect of data being personal versus process. Because I think when sometimes people say, Oh, we're going to start tracking these different metrics, there can be this natural tendency to say, Oh, well, I'm under a microscope now, but it doesn't have to be that way. I think that if, you know, you can use data and tell people very openly and have that conversation of, hey, this is what this is being used for. Nobody's under a microscope, but if something's not going the way that we want to and we're not achieving the outcome, we want to use that data for process improvements. And I think that's a conversation that just by having makes everybody much more open to, you know, not only the changes that arise from the assumptions that are made based on that data, but also, you know, they are looking into some of these things probably that on their own. Maybe a nurse recognizes in, you know, the review that, hey, we had a lot of falls for this specific type of patient. You know, how are we delivering care there? You know, are there things that we could do that would limit this? And, you know, as you had said, you know, help us all achieve the same end goal that we're all bought into. Yeah. And, and the trick here is a step that is so often missed when organizations do want to move forward and put data in place. And I'm sure there's a formal term out there. I'm not the first one to come up with this, but this idea of value-driven analytics, that you have to first say where you want to go and you all have to be on board with that. And this is not a decision that data can make for you. This has to be a decision driven by the values and the reason that your organization exists. So whether you're a for-profit company, whether you're a nonprofit company, your, your organization exists for a reason. And everyone in the organization better be on board with what that reason is and how you know if your organization is succeeding. What is that thing or accomplishment or outcome that you are trying to do? And if everybody buys into that, if everyone believes in that and everyone is striving for that, then data almost becomes something that everyone would naturally move towards, right? You want that because if we've all agreed that our goal is is X, our goal is to improve the health of the community around us. 
or our goal is to reduce environmental degradation, or our goal is to whatever it is, how do you know you're doing that? And so if you look around at each other and you're like, are we getting there? You can only answer that question then if you bring in the data that helps you measure it. So once you have your values aligned and you know where you're going, then the data becomes something that is not a tool to beat other people. It's not a tool to tell other people they're failing. It's not a tool to say, I'm going to micromanage everything you do. It becomes something that you all want because you want to know if you're you're rowing in the right direction. Value-driven analytics. I love that phrase. I think you should trademark that because it is phenomenal. And it's it's funny because it's something that people are like, well, that's kind of an oxymoron, right? Like, do those things really belong together? And for me, they're inseparable. The analogy I like to give is Google Maps, right? Google is the poster child for analytics and, and data-driven decision-making and, and analytic power. But when you open Google Maps, you have to tell it where you want to go. At least not yet. They haven't gone to the point where they just decide where you're going for you, right? You have to tell it where you want to go. And then not only do you have to tell it where you want to go, which you've decided, and no amount of data is going to, you know, magically decide for you that you want to go to the store, you want to go you know, out to dinner. But once you do that, it oftentimes gives you two routes. It says, here's a route that's going to be the fastest in time. And here's a route that's going to be the shortest in distance. And it can't tell you which one's better because it's the, the thing that makes it better is do you want to get there fast or do you want to conserve gas? Or do you want to take the scenic route, right? Like maybe you have a preference on there's a road here that goes over a dam and it's gorgeous. And like, I'll always add a minute to my drive to take that route, right? Because it's worth a minute to me. But no amount of data can determine those values. They have to be decided by humans. And it goes back to what you said, right? Humans are making these decisions. It's just that the data are helping us get there in the most efficient way, right? Or in the most value-based way. When we decide that efficient means speed or efficient means resources, we have to decide that. Because you ultimately determine what you are measuring and why you're measuring it. And the idea of, you know, value-driven analytics, it is the most sort of bundled up way that I think that you could package what you just said. And I think that that is so great. I love the Google Maps analogy too, because it's like, yeah, you can choose how you get there, but we're going to show you all of the different options to, you know, achieve the same outcome. So you had mentioned previously that, you know, one of the great things about the podcast is being able to meet new people. And it sounds like, you know, in some ways that this podcast is also, you know, sort of a networking opportunity for you, which I think is really cool. And I think it's something that a lot of people don't consider when they are starting a podcast, especially if they're starting a podcast that is in some way, you know, tied to their business, that it can be a really great marketing opportunity to get people on your show and get a conversation going. Will you tell me about a little bit about your experience finding guests and, you know, kind of your strategy to find good guests? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I have actually had you know, new relationships develop because I reached out to somebody and said, do you want to be on my podcast? And then we have this great interview and they go, you know, I'm working on this project. Do you think you could help me with, <laughs> you know, and then, it, and it wasn't even my intent. I reached out to them because actually I was very interested in their story and it just sort of was an accidental side product of that. But the way I find guests is I cruise around on LinkedIn. I'll look at conferences in my space and look at talks that I found that were really interesting or read blog articles. And when I find somebody that I think really has a story or a perspective or an experience that will help my audience, if I think about serving small to medium-sized nonprofits who are towards the beginning of their analytic journeys, if I find someone like that, I'll reach out to them. 
And it's interesting because, of course, I'm not a known entity. I'm not an identifiable name in any capacity. And so there's certainly some people that I think are above my pay grade for the moment. And I don't always hear back from them. But I've been surprised by the number of people that I send a blind LinkedIn message or I contact them, you know, through the their their company's contact form or sometimes they'll have a media form. So some of the companies will actually have media contacts. And so I can reach out to them and say, hey, I'm interested in doing a an, an podcast interview. Do you have somebody you could recommend to talk about this subject or this really cool thing I saw that you did? And I'm always surprised by how many actually really do want to share these stories. And again, in our industry with nonprofits, people are here to serve. And I think sharing those stories are part of that serving. We want other people to succeed as well. And so we're quite happy to share things of value that we know uh, to help others. Yeah, for our listeners, I feel like that is just such a phenomenal takeaway. You know, we at Castles, we get a lot of questions about guests and how to find guests. And I think that that, you know, the heart of the answer to that question, in my mind, it seems like you would probably agree is like, just reach out. Like, what's the worst they can say is no. And a lot of people are really interested in sharing their stories, even if they don't have experience, you know, podcasting in some fashion before. People want to come on and talk about the work that they are doing, whether it's for a nonprofit, whether it's for a Fortune 500 company, whether it's just someone who's passionate about this thing. And I think by cruising around things like LinkedIn, if you, you know, if it's more of an entertainment podcast, See if you can, you know, find some Reddit groups to follow and some subreddits or, you know, join a Facebook group with other, you know, sort of like-minded people. And I think that anyone out there who is looking for guests, just create, you know, maybe a basic sort of email that you can customize and then send off to people. You know, you don't want to ever seem cold, but I think that, you know, if you just have sort of a basic outline of like, hey, here's who I am. Here's my podcast. I would love to come in and interview you. It can be a really effective and efficient way to reach out to a large number of guests. You know, at the end of the day, you're still connecting with them one-on-one. So I think it's okay to have just a little basic template prepared. Um, There's a lot of tools out there for any of our listeners that you can use to send like these emails or even for your newsletter subscribers. Something I've seen uh, other podcast creators do is, you know, they will just put out a They'll put out a newsletter that basically is an open invitation for guests and we'll kind of sort through them and see, you know, who's interested in what their story is. So finding guests, you know, doesn't have to be challenging. I think the biggest part is, at least in my opinion, is just getting over that hump of reaching out. But, you know, if you don't ask, you don't get. Um, and a lot of people are totally willing to give you some of their time. Yeah. I've never had anybody be like, I'm offended that you asked. <laughs> no one's ever said that. I, I mean, people have just not responded and that's fine. And I would say, especially at the beginning, find why you're reaching out to somebody. Don't just, you know, like I agree having a template that has main information, but putting something in there of I'm reaching out to you because, right, this thing stood out about you or this thing in your talk really struck me and I feel like it would really benefit my listeners. And then thinking about why should they commit an hour of their life to do this? What's going to be the thing they get in return for that hour that they're going to give you? And it's not that it's like this, I don't know, cold exchange, but you do want to make it worth somebody's time to do that. And so whether it's the joy of getting to share their story with an audience that you know is going to resonate with them, whether it's the fact that if you've got a great audience and it's going to benefit this person to be in front of that audience, don't be afraid to share that. Or if, you know, like, again, it gives them, 
you know, if you serve a, a community that is struggling or is vulnerable, again, people are often quite willing to feel like they get to do something to help that. And so if you make it clear, like you doing this is going to help this group or this kind of person, I think that that can be, be it as well. But yeah, making sure that you understand that they're giving you something and that you want to make sure that they're supported in return. Yeah. And that's something that I totally left out of my little spiel all about finding guests, but it is a it is just a perfect point that, yeah, I love that idea of, you know, everything is a two way street, you know, when it comes to business, when it comes to, you know, co-marketing or having somebody on your podcast. And if you can come prepared with that thing that you're going to offer them, you know, sometimes it's as simple as, you know, promoting a another person's work. For example, like when I bring people on the creator spotlight series at the end, we always promote their podcast. We always promote their work and we link it in the show notes. Um, but if it's somebody who doesn't have a podcast, see if they want to promote their website or see if they, you know, have maybe a book or an article that they've written that they'd like for people to check out or for nonprofits specifically, you know, maybe you could go and you could do a call for donations to their website, something like that. So there's a lot of ways to prevent it it from being cold, but also, like you said, know, have that person know ahead of time that, you know, this hour that they spend with you recording is going to be a value to them. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about the podcast. You launched the podcast when? Uh, About a month ago. Great. And how many episodes have you recorded so far? So I've I've recorded 10 I think so far launched. I've got four out because I'm releasing them every week. That's great. And do you find that it's, you know, with your workflow, is it, you know, kind of a struggle to release an episode every week? Or do you think it's something that you've gotten to a process that's really manageable? So far, it's not been a struggle. Like I said, I've, I've really been very lucky in terms of guests and people reach, I've had a few people reach out to me who wanted to be in and, and most of the people that I've reached out to have said yes. And so I do recognize that, you know, if I'm doing a 20 minute podcast, it's going to take me, you know, half an hour beforehand meeting the person, making sure, you know, that we review it all and, and set up and writing my questions. And then it's going to take the 30, 40 minutes to actually do the interview. And then it'll actually take me probably an hour to two hours to edit it and make sure that everything's set up and, and posted. But being aware of that time, I can make sure that I block that off. And I do try to batch produce them. So I try to make sure that I've, I'm not just scrambling to get today's episodes done right before I actually publish it today. I'm three weeks ahead already in terms of finished episodes. And I know that I have another what, six that are waiting for me to get to and process. And like I said, I've only been at this for a month, but my goal for next month is that I set the a day early on in the month done where I've already done all of the interviews for that month, the previous month. I'm going to process everything that day. And then every week through the end of that month, I can just release an episode I've already processed. And I'll, of course, be doing recordings for the following month. I think for me, having that bulk processing and just having it done makes me feel a lot better about it. I don't like getting stuck up against a deadline. Yep. Yep. And, you know, it's one of my like big pieces of advice for podcasters and content creators in general is like the two keys in my mind to success are quality and consistency. And what you had said about how you know exactly more or less how long it's going to take to do these things, it makes that planning process a lot easier and you have those expectations going in. So I think that something that, you know, if you're starting a new podcast, a great thing to do is your first time 
Just look how long all of these individual things take you to produce your first episode. And then from there, you can even decide, you know, how many episodes you want to put out each month with your decision to go with a podcast every week. I think that that's, you know, probably the most common format. And I think it's a pretty surefire way to success is, you know, a podcast a week. But, you know, depending on who you are, what your other, you know, external commitments look like, you know, a podcast every week might not be possible. And, you know, that is totally okay in my mind. As long as you have an expectation of how much time it's going to take you to produce every episode going in, you know, you can lay that framework from the beginning and it'll enable you to keep, you know, consistently putting out quality episodes. So what do you see as sort of the longer term vision of the show? And for another loaded question, what data are you using to make those decisions about the trajectory of your show? It's a good question. I mean, I actually started the podcast a little bit as an experiment in that I had, I wasn't sure I'm fairly new to business. And so trying to find how do I connect to people? How do I best serve people? And, and, you know, another reason for my podcast isn't just to, to try to drive business, but part of my mission for existing, part of the reason I have my business is that I want to help nonprofits amplify their impact through data. And so if I can do that where they listen to an episode and it changes something that they do in their work, then that I've succeeded. And I can only do that if people are actually listening to it. So when you say, what data do I look at? The first I was looking at is how many people are actually listening to the episodes and how many people and from where are they listening to those episodes? And so I noticed right away that I actually had listeners from day one, which surprised me because I had done no marketing (laughs) I don't have a following. So I don't even know who these people are. Bless them for listening because they're making my day every day when I wake up and there they are. And so that was the first one is like, do people even care? And do they continue to care? Right. So a a thing that I looked at is, did they listen to the first episode and then not want to do anything else? Right. Did they did I see a spike and then they all just dropped off because everyone went, this was terrible. So that was the first date I looked at is, do they stick with me or am I driving them away? So far, they seem to be sticking with me. So that's kind of cool. In terms of then long term, how would I keep doing this? I think so long as people are still listening, I will keep doing this. I'm sure down the road, I may end up with things that I'll have to balance how many people are listening against other avenues that I might have to reach out to them. But in terms of yeah, wanting to stay involved, if there are people who find value in what I'm sharing on the podcast, I want to keep providing that. So We'll see. We'll see how long it goes. If if listeners go to zero, I'm going to not just sit in a room and talk to myself. So <laughs> that would definitely be something I'll be keeping an eye on. And then, yeah, I'll just have to make that decision if if someday I'm so lucky to have the problem that I have multiple avenues where people are listening to me that I'll have to pick the one that is most efficient. But we're not there yet. I don't have that problem. I mean, I think what you just said in and of itself was a great example of value-based analytics. You went into this to help nonprofits, and then you start started the podcast to have these conversations around data and why it was important, get people more comfortable with the idea. And, you know, that's really the driver. If people keep listening, you're going to keep putting the content out there. And I think that that just ties everything that we had talked about with data all really nicely back together. And it's uh, really been cool to to chat with you and have you share your experiences. I've certainly learned a lot, I think, even about myself and my relationship with data that's probably similar to a lot of others out there. And 
I think what you're doing with the podcast is just so awesome uh, because it allows us to have these thoughts and have these conversations that we might never have otherwise even considered. Yeah, well, thank you so much for giving me a space to share that conversation. Amazing. So thank you so much for joining us uh, on this episode of the Creator Spotlight series, Alexandra. You can find Alexandra's podcast at heartsouldata.com and you can look it up on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your playlists at heartsoulanddata.com. The link to Alexandra's podcast will be in the show notes along with the link to her website. So go ahead and check that out. Until next time, I'm your host, Sam Chlebowski. Take care, everyone.